Arizona. Would you would you be willing to slide your chair just kind of up a little bit? Yeah, that's perfect. Put it right there. Here, so we don't rock back over the edge. <laughs> don't have to hold anything. So we're just looking forward to talking to you because I um, a lot of times when we get together, you know, it's just business stuff or details or processing or you know problems or whatever and well we haven't done it at all for like a year a year and a half i haven't been back here so but but the other thing is that um i've kind of overlooked the, the material that um, we're offering to people through camp and camp two and that material the context of the material like the original kind of the original camp material that we're offering the context of it has a lot of it been um, spoken or written about by you? Like we've used what you've been publishing in Attitude Problem in the magazine and some of your other writings as a basis for um, um, the work that we offer, like the, the concepts. And the, I mean, even our newsletter is called The Burn, and it comes straight out of your whole um, speaking about the burn and making that a word. You really made that a word, and, and, and we have been really more than grateful for your contribution to the world like that. And I have always been under the impression that um, that in some ways you've been restrained to certain domains or contexts to, to make that available to. And what I wanted to do in this talk is, is really open up the um, open up a space that you could speak into that um, was not restricted really anywhere like that. Because I know that you know who you are as a being, you've got deep um, like issues and wisdom, or you've got like a, a, a ground from which you operate, a, a foundation. And um, we've never really spoken in the big sense, or like you, we just have little pieces, bits and pieces here and there from you. And I, like, in this talk, who you're speaking to are people that really want to um, function in the world. And I know that you use this word um, some, so it's kind of maybe from that word that I want to talk to. It's like as sorcerers and sorceresses, in terms of being able to provide or invoke or create transformational spaces in which they work with people. I mean, they're really, their life is, they're committed to serving people by um, providing a sanctuary in which transformation can take place. And there is so much to know and learn about that. And these are like apprentice beginning sorcerers and sorceresses who are dedicating their life to this kind of work. And they need to know everything about it really everything all the basics all the fundamentals all the way on up to the you know the fine point detailed you know space manipulation or space whatever you know like the, all that stuff and in particular in particular what we need to know is like internal stuff like what what is like a sorcerer or sorceress working in the world will first be confronted by their own blocks or their own fear, in particular their own fear, their own hesitation or view of themselves or the world that doesn't allow them the 
show up and, and so what I'd like to do is really open the space up and have you just start to talk about stuff and I'll ask some questions to kind of direct towards what um, where our biggest needs are in terms of what we need to know okay. well first I would have to say I don't know everything <laughs> and I don't claim to be an example of what I know so um, that gets me off the hook for saying whatever I want to say. Yeah. Um, but the first thing, when you say sorcery, the first thing I would have to say is that um, when people think of sorcery or magic, mm -hmm. they tend to think it's a shortcut. Mm -hmm. You know, people think sorcery is some kind of shortcut that will make things easier. That, you know, you'll be able to, uh, you know, manipulate people to do what you want or you'll be able to win the lottery through magical means, or even in the spiritual domain, but somehow being some kind of a sorcerer gives you the, gives you the ability to do things more easily. Mm -hmm. And in one sense that's true, but I think that the first thing that one learns about any kind of sorcery, uh, and you know, I'm using that term very broadly, yes. but as I think you are, um, the first thing you learn is that sorcery is harder than ordinary life. And you should be prepared for that. I mean, anyone who's interested in learning any form of magic, you know, whether it's whether it's called magic, like some kind of sorcery, or whether it's just art, you know, or excellence in whatever you do, you have to realize that it's going to cost you more than the average person does. You'll, you will work harder. You will have less convenience. And... Um, you know, there's an emotional preparation, you know, you should, you should just make your peace with that, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, you know, I complain all the time about the circumstances <laughs> of my life, just as Debbie. But on another level, there's a certain peace I've made with what I have to put up with. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like if you read, uh, oh, uh, The Wizard of Earthsea. Mm -hmm. you know, yes. By Ursula Le um, you know, she describes in there how, you know, when you become a sorcerer, you end up sleeping out in the rain because you know that if you do something about the circumstances of your life, that everything's a balance, you know, everything's this ecological kind of balance. If you stop the rain where you are, it could cause a flood somewhere else. And you're not willing, when you become sensitive, mm -hmm. you're not willing to take responsibility for doing that to the world. Yeah. So you end up sleeping in the rain under a bush because, you know, the most powerful wizard will end up doing that because it's it's a matter of taking responsibility for your actions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, like, that's the biggest biggest form of magic is, is for people to take responsibility for their own actions. Could you, like, really talk about that and explain well, what that means? Yeah, the first thing I would say, and I think, this, I, think I heard Warner say this or someone, you know, I didn't make this up, but... Um, is that you, you need to realize, first of all, that you know we're capable of having whatever we want. And, and it's very likely, you know, and I'm being polite to say it's very likely, that whatever we have, we have because we want it. Mm -hmm. And you say that to most people, and they go, no, 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 I don't want what I have. Mm -hmm. I want something else. Mm -hmm. And they'll come up with all kinds of arguments. But the degree to which someone argues that they don't want what they have right now is the degree to which they are powerless, you know, to which they are <coughs> refusing the natural and spontaneous possibility of sorcery in everyday life. 
Yeah. And uh, I think it's little, you know, seemingly little things like that, like just realizing to begin with. And for some people, maybe this would be a lot of work. I mean, you know, I've I've had myself my uh, my personality beaten <laughs> beaten down to the point where I'm willing to accept that you know what I have is exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't always like to cop to that, but I but it's pretty clear. Yeah. And for some people, it's a lot of work to get to that point. Um, they have a lot of arguments for why they don't what they want is not what they what, what they have is not what they want. Um, but I think seeing that is the, is like a very important beginning step, yeah. and and people should you know if, if people want to create a course of study for themselves about sorcery, then they can take that as a very important lesson and one that is not just learned once, um, and and one that should maybe be investigated like literally investigated to find out if it's true. Um, I think. You know, from what I've read and studied and encountered about different systems of sorcery, mm -hmm. um, that what usually happens is people, you know, some smart person, you know, notices that some aspect of life has a key to some kind of magic in it. So, I mean, you hear these things from like athletes all the time, where they're out on the playing field, they're at a, under a certain kind of stress. Right. And they either get into a particular ecstatic state where they like feel one with the universe, mm -hmm. or they get into a, a state where they're able to perceive, you know, like the other, the opposing football team as blobs of energy, you know, just like the way Castaneda talks about luminous eggs or something, you know, or mm -hmm. something analogous to that. And it becomes not just an experience of, you know, picking up this physical football and throwing it, but purely a consideration of energy. And it's, it's uh, you know, a journey in, an, in another world that has nothing to do with, with ordinary physical perception. And people have those experiences about all kinds of things. I mean, people have that jogging. People have that, well, sex, of course. I mean, that's the whole foundation of, like, tantric yoga and stuff, which has become something really pathetic in contemporary Western culture in terms of you know, age tantric and stuff. But, but someone, you know, people were smart enough to notice that if you engage sex in a certain mood, in a certain way, if you restrain yourself in a certain way, that that leads to something. Mm -hmm. And any experience, I think, really can be, can be explored with that same spirit of like, you know, here I am walking down the road. You know, what about this experience will lead me into, um, you know, what's called a higher dimension or another level of reality? And a lot of it's just a matter of how we perceive things. Uh, I think that's why Castaneda talks so much about perception in his books, is that it's a matter of how we perceive. And pretty much all the time, how we perceive is a function of what, we, what and how we choose to perceive. Um, you know, so on like an exoteric level, people talk about how your attitude affects your life. You know, if you have a positive attitude, then you perceive life in a certain way. And things. You attract certain things, and things resonate in a certain way, and your life follows a certain course. Same thing if you have a negative attitude. You perceive things negatively. Everything reinforces the victim position or whatever, and it leads you down that path. And it's purely a matter of what path you choose. Just about perception, it's almost like we've been beginning to work with this whole idea about listening. 
and 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 how powerful listening is in terms of creating the reality. Because it's like you listen to what you want to listen to, right? and, and and if you, s you only see what you want to see, then that's what you have. <coughs> but training ourselves, training ourselves to shift our our way of perceiving, when you talk about that. I'm talking like really just practical, like you've been saying, it's real practical, basic. You have so much experience in just like like that. It's because I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so this poster or T-shirt or something once, I had a picture of a mouse yeah. and a mouse trap with a piece of cheese, and the mouse is sitting there looking at the trap, uh -huh. thinking about the cheese, and the caption says. Um, Avoiding mistakes comes from experience. <laughs> and then the next line is, experience comes from making mistakes. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you know, that's yeah. how it works. Well, I think in terms of listening, you know, the first thing to be able to listen is to shut up. Hmm. You know, and, and to refer to Castaneda again, um, you know, he talks about shutting off the internal dialogue. and. That's an idea that I think has different levels, you know, like there's the exoteric level and there's the mesoteric level and esoteric level. Mm -hmm. So I think on the simplest level, which is where people probably need to start, mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of shutting up. You know, it used to be on the, you know, on the sanctuary here that there were, all the, there were lots of little sayings on the wall, and there mm -hmm. still, still are some, but it used to be there were just some sayings. and. I looked around at them, and they were things like, you know, a man told a story to an ass, and the ass wagged its ears. Or, you know, there were a few others, yeah. you know, just sort of little arcane things. And then I realized one day that if you look at all of them, basically they all said, shut up. Hmm. You know, in one way or another, they were all about, like, the pointlessness of mm -hmm. useless, extraneous words. Yeah. And... Um, you know, if you can't, uh, if you're going to speak, say something that's better than silence, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there's a real power to be found in shutting up, and uh, you know, not in the sense of controlling, you know, letting letting yourself be controlled because you're being meek, yeah. you know, and shutting up. But but talking is a way that people expend a lot of energy, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure people have experiences in their own life people they know who just yap, 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 yap. And they might not be physically exhausted, but there's a certain focus of spiritual energy that they, that they just don't have. Mm -hmm. And you run into people like that all the time. Um, and I think also even when that's not the case, where someone's not like yapping obsessively, I think we have ways of speaking as human beings that are, I mean, if you were to design a way to, for us to exhaust ourselves, it's like someone sat down with a calculator and figured out what's the fastest way to expend our spiritual energy, our integrity, you know, um, is through speech. And speech is like the one of the things that just supposedly distinguishes human beings from other animals on the planet, you know. So that ought to point to it, point out to us that speech, there's something very significant about speech. And you know, certainly there are a lot of spiritual traditions where it's a practice not to speak, mm -hmm. you know, except when you really have to. Um, but I think 
if, if you look at speech as a relief valve, like a steam mm -hmm. pressure relief valve, mm -hmm. um, then I think people can benefit from letting the steam build some more and also um, being very careful with what they say, you know, just being more selective. Um, I mean, I'm sort of antisocial anyway, but um, sometimes I think I seem more antisocial than I am because I want to be careful of what I say. Mm -hmm. yeah. And people think that I don't want to talk to them or that uh, you know, I'm unfriendly or stuck up or whatever. And, you know, just like I was back to the thing I was saying earlier about paying for, you know, being willing to pay for being a sorcerer, that it's, that it's more difficult. I mean, you might have to, uh, if, if, you're, if you start off, you know, as like a conventional person and you take on some path of some kind of personal transformation, it may cost you social acquaintances who think now that you're stuck up because you don't like to talk about sports with them as much, you know. I mean, the very tangible. I mean, that's what it could cost you. And it's like they always say, you know, you get to find out who your friends really are. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, social standing, that kind of social thing is one of the first things that someone has to be willing to pay. Yeah. And then in terms of also of listening, to get back to that, um, you know, first of all, shutting up. And then really, um, you know, being, taking the time to hear what's present and, and what people are saying. I find when people ask me questions, you know, like if I'm doing a public talk or something, or I'm leading a group or whatever, that most of the time the answer to someone's question is clear if you really hear the question. And when I go to talks that other people are giving in whatever circumstance, I really notice when the speaker either listens or does not listen to what the questions are, can really tell. Or if you hear interviews on NPR or whatever, you know, yeah. um, you can really tell who is listening and who is not. And, and the one who is listening is usually the one that has the most power. So there's a tremendous power that comes from listening, and there's tremendous power that's lost from speaking indiscriminately. So right there, I mean, that's the kind of thing that if someone wanted to, they could take that and make that their spiritual work for a year. You know, take an exercise of silence and, and just do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there'd be incredible benefits to something oh, yeah. like that. And that's, again, is the kind of thing that you can take something very simple and by in, engaging it with full attention and engaging it with, with intent, transform that into an opportunity for an extraordinary kind of transformation. The world is full of those opportunities. Every moment, I mean, you can sit down, and I've done this exercise with people in workshops where you can sit down, outdoors it works really well. Wherever you sit down, and mark off one square inch mm -hmm. in front of you, and then just examine it properly, you know, like really thoroughly. And there's so much to see in one square inch of dirt, or one square inch of, of carpeting mm -hmm. inside of it in a house. 
it's just <laughs> incredible what's there in one square inch. And um, imagine what there is to see if we just open to what's around us all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the, the idea I would like to drive home about sorcery, because, you know, sorcery sounds like, ooh, you know, Luke Skywalker, right. like all this stuff, <laughs> you know, and uh, maybe even drugs. And <laughs> But it's it's not that at all. It's it's uh, the, the greatest power is uh, is when you relate to the most ordinary circumstance in an extraordinary way. And I I think I read this somewhere that in uh, in a lot of traditions you know of, of sorcery where like the sorcerer has like implements that he uses mm -hmm. like you know their wands or gourds or whatever they are yeah. stones and things that the greatest sorcerers are the ones who have the fewest implements hmm. that they have the least to carry around yeah. and you know so that you can be stripped naked walking through the desert and you can perform whatever you need to perform mm -hmm. and I keep coming back to Castaneda not because that's the only system of sorcery available but because it's it's really nicely articulated yeah. for, for modern culture even though Castaneda is creating a real smoke screen around the last couple of years mm -hmm. which I think is on purpose but um, but he, uh, he quotes Don Juan as saying, um, a warrior has only his will and his patience, and with them he builds whatever he needs. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's, pretty, that's a pretty powerful state to be in. Yeah. I remember once at, you know, I used to live in Sedona, which is sort of the flaky New Age capital of the universe. There was some guy I met who was into like Native American ceremonies. And he'd go to sweat lodges, and because uh, some people put on sweat lodges up there, go to these sort of flaky New Age American Indian ceremonies that <laughs> that pseudo shaman would put on and stuff. Yeah. And he had a buffalo skull that he'd gotten somewhere, you know. And of course, if you see movies about the Old West and books and whatever, you always see these buffalo skulls that shamans have sometimes, you know. And this guy had one, and it was like it was like a prop for him. And it was, you know, these things aren't light. I don't know what they weigh. They probably weigh 15 pounds, you know. And this guy would lug this thing around to him, around with him to these ceremonies in like this bag. Yeah. And he wasn't a big guy, so it was funny because he looked like a five-year-old boy, kind of carrying a big, you know, treasure in this sack. And it was like. What the hell was he carrying that thing around for? My God. You know? He was leaking so much energy yeah. through that and through his fixation on that. Yeah. So I think the essence of sorcery is really very simple. A couple times here you've mentioned this idea of leaking energy or conservation of energy, and you were using an example of speaking as a, a one of the ways. Can you talk about that more? Yeah. About the idea of leaking? Yeah, or even like collecting. Yeah. Well, I think you know what I've what I've been been told and what I've seen, um, which is not the same as what I practice necessarily. But uh, is that the body? You know, the human mechanism is a natural accumulator of energy. I mean, the biological organism um, is is anti-entropy. I mean, the whole notion of it biological organism is is, is anti-entropy. Yeah. 
and on the on the subtle and spiritual levels, we're the same way. You know, and we can use that to our advantage by simply not leaking what comes to us naturally anyway. I mean, the, the soul, the spirit grows just by the experiences we have every day. And um, if, we, if we relate to those experiences as a, as a resource, and to, if we relate to ourselves as a resource, um, we can let that energy collect and then just be judicious in what we do with it, so that we're not expending energy faster than we're breathing it in. I think you know, I think that's what Gurdjieff called dying like a dog. When you expend more energy than you bring in, then you just kind of the, you run the organism down, not just physically but you know, psychically and spiritually, until there's nothing left, and then you just die. You, roll, you fall over and die, and then maybe if there's reincarnation, you start over. And uh, I think that we can we can uh, have a kind of husbandry of what comes our way in terms of experiences and how we store the information that comes to us, not just literally mental information, but the emotional input that we get, all the kinds of food, the subtle kinds of food that we get. Um, you know, some portion of that is needed to just fuel the organism and keep it running, and some portion of it can be stored. <laughs> uh, you know, for later use. Yeah. And you don't even have to know what you're storing it for, or uh, even, th I don't think you even have to think and plan a lot about how to store it. But if, because the organism does that naturally, we have ways of storing it. Um, just like the body, you know, if you eat excess calories, the body stores it as fat, because it, that's how the body's wired. Right. And I think our experiences and, and soul food that we get um, operates the same way, if we let it. But um, I think because, you know, the hows and whys are never really figured out. Maybe because, you know, as children, we make decisions that we're not we don't have the, the uh, all the information with which to make those decisions properly. So as children, we make decisions, we form habits that cause us to expend a lot of energy uh, because we just don't know what else to do. I mean, it's obvious that, that children have more energy than they know what to do with. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think part of helping children grow up properly is, is giving them some guidance in how to direct their energy so that they they have dominion over their own lives mm -hmm. as opposed to just expending their energy and having all these hooks you know all these loose ends hanging out that then some corporation through the through advertising will hook on mm -hmm. in order to pull their attention for the sole purpose of extracting money out of them yeah. but at the same time that they're that they're extracting money out of them they're you know ripping the <laughs> you know the literal structure yeah. of that person, and that's what happens to us. You know, whenever we're seduced by by the media, mm -hmm. by advertising, or you know, by our own um, unexamined or untempered or un, un, uh, 
unfulfilled desires. I don't mean unfulfilled in the sense of not getting what you want, but unfulfilled in the sense of not, you know, I think desire is something that can be, uh, you know, cooked. Desire itself, desire itself is um, an essential element of life. And, and when we experience desire, if we relate to that desire with clarity, then even if even if we never get what we're desiring, you know, like Leila and Majnun kind of thing, mm-hmm. the desire itself becomes fulfilled by virtue of having desire. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the experience of an artist, I think. And, and anyone who's obsessed or inspired by what they do. And again, that's where that's where sorcery shows up when someone is so intent upon what they're doing or so in love with what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, that that the desire itself um, is like a, it sets off a chain reaction or something there's a there's an alchemical process that happens in the background just because one has a desire and one is pursuing sacrifices one makes for that desire and the, you know, the way that all other experiences filter through that desire. And that works, you know, I think the universe doesn't care much whether we use that in a positive or a negative way. I mean, if someone is, you know, has a, has a for example, a certain kind of sexual obsession, um, which is not unusual in our modern society, um, that sexual obsession can lead to, you know, will lead them down a certain path. Mm-hmm. And if they, <coughs> if they are really obsessed with that, the desire itself will do something to them. You know, and if you, I mean, if you meet someone who's like a, you know, a really established child molester or something, or, uh, you know, someone who has some kind of a perversion that they've really gotten into, mm-hmm. you can tell. <laughs> You know, people like that, you can just tell when you meet them, even if you meet them for business about something that sex never comes up as a topic, like, right. you can just tell that they've got something going on there. Mm-hmm. And it may or may not be something that's appealing. Yes. But in any case, the, the, um, the kind of obsession with that desire, you know, and the same thing with money. I mean, people who are obsessed with money, it does something to them. Mm-hmm. You know, like the things I've written about scars, you know, two problems. About how whatever path we choose will lead us to, to have certain scars. Mm. You know, it's like it's like we come to this planet just to get scars. <laughs> mm. You know, and that's maybe a little bit of a negative way to put it, but I think uh, that that's that's in line with <laughs> reality. You know, that we come here to have certain experiences and to be shaped by them, mm-hmm. and we do have a degree of choice a large degree of choice, certainly as adults, over what those experiences are and how we're going to pursue, how we're going to, um, how we're going to, to, uh, to tint our perception in order to use those experiences. Uh, so the same experience, just depending on how you perceive it, can be, you know, can lead you down a path of greater power or can lead you down a path of dissolution. Evaporate. 
down on the door. Also speaking about attention and like um, having attention um, distracted and used by a corporation in order to extract money from you. And it's like, um, how does talk about attention and sorcery? Um, well, it's attention is one of those things. Like a lot of like a lot of aspects of sorcery you can take any one aspect and say this is the whole thing if you just do this you know if you just learn to shut up or if you just you know learn to take responsibility for your circumstances you know any one of those things can really lead you to the whole picture because yeah. it's like a hologram you know you have one little piece and it gives you the whole image if you connect to it properly um, and attention is I mean, attention, in some respects, is like if you if you trace back and back and back within consciousness, attention is the like the furthest back thing that we have a choice about. You know, if you want to get into like where does free will arise? You know, if you want to get metaphysical or philosophical about free will, and determination, and destiny. So, free will ostensibly is one of the things that makes humans unique. And therefore, that's another clue that that's one of the reasons why we're here, is to sort of go through some kind of experience of free will. And what does that mean? So if you look at free will, eventually, if you explore what free will is, you'll come to attention being like the atom or the, the first branch in the chain of where we have free, free will, where that comes from. We have the choice at the most basic level of where we put our attention. Whether I put my attention on talking to you or listening to the bird chirping in the background. You know? And those choices are always presenting themselves to us. And all the extraordinary people I've ever met are people whose attention is you know, it's within their grasp. People that I've ever met that have the least power uh, in their lives are the people who have the least control over their attention. And again, children, as an example, I mean, uh, I've met a lot of, of uh, children raised just out in the world or ordinary in ordinary ways. I don't want to say out in the world, delete that from the um, <laughs> But, you know, just kids you meet that, that They've grown up on television and 30-second commercial spots and, sh and channel surfing and then, and then on the internet surfing around. And it's like they, they're not used to <coughs> focusing on anything. And that's what the next generation is like. And I think, you know, a lot of them as they grow up, they learn how to bring their attention together at least enough to be able to hold down a job and get laid, you know. <laughs> basic priorities right. of human life um, but <coughs> but they're cut off from a lot of the depth of experience because they don't have that ability to focus attention and uh, attention in one sense it's like I don't know what to say about attention mm -hmm. what can you say about it like what can you say about God 
there's nothing to be said. It's either there or it isn't. Um, so we can talk around attention, about what attention is. I think that uh, learning to place attention by, you know, intentionally, by choice, is maybe the ultimate human accomplishment. So how, how will somebody learn that? Um, well, I would say you don't learn it by trying to watch a second hand go around the watch for the full 60 seconds. It's kind of going at it backwards. Um, I think a lot of it begins with attention to oneself, you know, because I think we're not able to pay attention to what's around us because we don't notice what we're up to. So I think a lot of, of being able to observe the world and observing other people starts with observing oneself. So like in, um, you know, uh, it's real easy for people to observe each other's foibles. Uh, and not so easy necessarily to observe one's own. But really in terms of, of, of sorcery or, or spiritual evolution or whatever, the only value of observing other people the only value of observing other people and understanding their foibles and figuring out where they're at is to apply it to yourself. The only value. I mean, that's kind of like the difference between white sorcery and black sorcery, white magic, black magic. You know, black magic might be observing how the human mechanism works in other people so that you can use it against them. And I've met people in spiritual work who I've done just that. I mean, they're very sharp at pinning down what other people are up to, you know, and very accurate, you know, and, and sometimes it can be a real blessing to meet someone like that because they'll show you something you need to see. But it's a blessing to you. It's not a blessing to them because, you know, they're giving into the dark side of the force <laughs> um, because they've, they've taken the value of it and turned it 180 degrees and in so doing are further reinforcing their refusal to observe themselves. Um, so really the value of, of observing other people is so that we can observe ourselves better. And we want to observe ourselves better so that we can begin to identify and then dismantle the filters that we put up between ourselves and our experience because it's those filters that interrupt our attention, you know, that cause us to start thinking when we're in the middle of an experience and, and wanting to interpret that experience in line with our already established interpretation of previous experiences mm -hmm. to reinforce everything, mm -hmm. you know, so that we don't have to go through any cognitive dissonance. Right. You know, heaven forbid there should be cognitive dissonance. Um, and uh, Cognitive dissonance is where reality is at odds with our belief system. Right, yeah. right. And most people, when, in, when confronted with cognitive dissonance, rather than adjusting their belief system, they will redefine reality. They'll interpret reality in a way that enables them to maintain their belief system. That's a literal, I mean, that's like a scientifically established fact through by sociologists. You know, they talk about it. And it's, it's no secret. There's nothing esoteric about it at all. Um, but talking about cognitive dissonance, um, and this relates also to attention, 
is I, I was reading an interview with um, John Cleese, you know? Oh, yeah, from uh, Monty Python. Monty Python, yeah. And the, someone was asking him about creativity because he had been doing a series of seminars or videos or something about creativity. Hmm. And he said that um, an essential element of creativity, and I obviously would apply this to spiritual work, is the uh, is, is a tolerance for the discomfort of an unresolved potential of some kind. So, like if you're a, if you're writing a script, the example he was using, you know, a comedy script, you know, there might be a quick resolution to something happening, you know, that would be sort of funny. And if you're in a hurry, you're going to go for that quick thing. And then you get comedy that's of the level of like, you know, TV sitcoms. Mm-hmm. But if you have, uh, if, if you're willing to sort of tolerate not knowing what you're going to do yet, mm-hmm. if you're willing to tolerate that, then other creative ideas come up from a deeper place. You know, it's like you drill a well and the first water that comes out, you know, is, is maybe more surface water and it's got gunk in it and stuff. Right. But, but if you wait a while, sometimes a deeper thing comes out. And the thing that, that allows that deeper thing to come out is if you just create the space by waiting. You know, again, it's your attention. Mm-hmm. If your attention is on for example, the fact that you're looking for a creative resolution to, you know, this comedy script, but it could be a sculpture, it could be a conversation, you know, it could be anything. A mechanical, I mean, mechanics probably experience this all the time, working yeah. on cars or whatever, or inventors, you know, anyone working with machinery. Um, if you wait and, and have the kind of space and, and clarity of attention, then an, a deeper answer will come. And it's the ability to mine those deeper answers out of one's experience that separates a mediocre you know, artist or comedian or mechanic or whatever, or sorcerer, from someone who is highly skilled and who would be considered a master. Yeah. And um, sometimes that's a matter of time, like just waiting for an answer. And sometimes it's sometimes it's not a matter of time; it's just a matter of the depth of attention. Um, it's it's like you can you can suck on the well with a, you can pump the well with a low pressure for a long period of time, and, and the water will eventually come up, you know. <coughs> or you can exert a stronger pressure and get the result, get the deep water out quickly. And I think that's how sorcerers bend time. You know, that's what bending time is. When a sorcerer, instead of having to wait, like most people do, a sorcerer, by the, the power of their attention, mm-hmm. is able to you know, suck what they need up out of the depths of the universe somehow, um, because their attention is strong enough. Mm-hmm. And then what might otherwise take time doesn't take time. It's instant. And of course, that's a necessary skill for any sorcerer, yeah. because there is not enough time. I mean, I do not have time to be sitting here talking to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, bending time, which is an an art that comes out of attention, yeah. is is essential for all sorcerers. 
So that should probably be lesson, you know, lesson two or three or somewhere up in the first ten lessons. Mm -hmm. There has to be, you know, bending time. If, if you had to teach me to bend time, what would you tell me to do? Um, don't tolerate distractions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. Some of it sounds kind of heartless and people tell me I'm, you know, I don't allow enough space for a relationship in my life. So that's probably also true. But I think that, um, you know, sometimes to get a 10% result, you have to put in 100% effort. Yeah. So um, there's a way of leaning on time that will eventually, you know, if you lean on time, eventually it will sort of yield and give you a, a higher than average yield. Mm. Higher than average response, mm -hmm. um, and you know there are there are more esoteric kind of tricks. I mean that's like an esoteric thing. Yeah. Leaning on time. What the hell does that mean? Right. And you know, and that's leaning on time is one of those <coughs> things. It's an example of paying dearly for the fruits of of being a sorcerer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very expensive to lean on time. Right. I mean, you get worn out sometimes. And it's a pressure. It's a constant pressure. But on a more exoteric level, uh, you can do things like uh, just work with procrastination. Mm -hmm. Basic energy time management. Mm -hmm. Time management. Uh, I'm just looking at where you're procrastinating and, and don't procrastinate. Mm -hmm. Do it now. There's a little exercise I read about in some money magazine or something where you take a little card, three by five card, and you write on it, do it now. Mm -hmm. And you carry it around in your pocket, like where you keep your car keys or your handkerchief or whatever, so that you know you feel it and then you're oh yeah, I do it now. Or you put it up on the mirror when you're shaving in the morning mm -hmm. and you just keep that with you and, and mechanically implant it into your consciousness, just those three words, do it now, do it now, do it now. And just by implanting that in your consciousness over and over again, then slowly one begins to act on that. And you can literally mechanically train yourself to reduce and eliminate procrastination with little tricks like that. Yeah. And, you know, there are pros and cons to doing things mechanically to oneself like that. But that can be a beginning way of working with it. Yeah. Uh, and then, because in the midst of that, see, the value of something like that is not just to mechanically train yourself to do it now. Mm -hmm. That would be like, you know, if you were satisfied with that, well, then fine, you take that and go have a nice life and leave the rest <laughs> of us alone, you know. <laughs> but what a wise person does if, in the midst of something like that 